Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Mike asked me to share something about my experience with communion, and I'm very happy to do so because there are a number of areas in my walk with Christ where I look at my history and I say, why didn't somebody explain this to me earlier? And one of the most powerful of those areas is the area of communion. I grew up in a church where communion was an unexplained ritual. And apparently, no big deal. It was extremely regular, but in no way did anyone ever mention to me, hey, this is important, let alone explain to me what was actually happening or what was supposed to be happening. So at age 16, I gave my life to Christ and essentially became an evangelical and moved to Bible-believing, gospel-teaching congregations. But nobody there either thought or told me that they thought that communion was a big deal. It was symbolic, for sure. The symbolism is pretty rich, but it was still just a simple exercise. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and that's all it was for me, a brief passing memorial. But I did begin to see that the church historically had thought that communion was a very, very big deal. What I discovered, and much of this discovery happened here at Oak Hills, are the things that we are talking about in this sermon series. The reality is there is far more going on here than ritual and symbols, and that's what Mike has been talking about the last few weeks. Communion here in this room is not just symbol of community, but the place of actual community. Communion here in this room is not just a symbol of reconciliation, but the place and conduit of actual reconciliation. And the thing that fires me the most is this. Communion here with you is not a symbol of the wedding feast of the Lamb, but the front end of the actual feast that we are going to. Everything that is happening here as we take communion together will continue to happen there. In the vast banquet in the house of the Father on the new earth, that much is biblical. But I also suspect that we are in a very real way actually in that banqueting hall already. That this room, this actual place from Oak Hills will be transformed and drawn into that room And even now, today, this room is a very real part of the eternal halls where we are going to feast together and converse together and laugh together and live together as fully reconciled by Christ. And we'll remember what we did together way back on the old earth here in Folsom, even as we talk about all that we're going to do in the fulfilled kingdom forever. So communion looks different to me now. You look different to me now. And on any given Sunday, walking into that place, as I walk into this room, requires only that I do the small work of stopping and pausing and thinking through 
where I really am. And I'm very thankful to be here. I'm very thankful to be in that place with you. So we stand and join me in today's scripture reading. Our reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's located on page 1150 in the Bibles on your chairs there. Let's read together. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A person ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. This is the word of the Lord. If I could ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful for the couple of weeks we've had to reflect upon this amazing practice of your table. And we recognize, indeed, because of the presence of your spirit, because of the truthfulness of your word, and because of what you do when people open themselves to you, that there is more going on in here at your table and as we ponder these things from your word. We recognize as well today that there are people here who are in some kind of difficult place in their lives. And we believe that you have brought each one of us here to fulfill your good purpose in us today, both individually and perhaps even more as a congregation, as a people who are called to reflect the righteousness of your kingdom in this world. And so we continue to turn our attention to the good work that you're doing to these mysterious and profound things of your table and pray that we might be shaped and transformed as we consider these things yet again today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most important traditions in our family is the time that we have spent together in our backyard over the years. We moved into our house in 1998, so we've been there 20 years. When we moved in, our oldest son, Sam, was five, Abby was four, Izzy was one, and Julie and I were 
younger. Sam is now 25, and he lives on his own. Abby is 24, and she has a life of her own in San Francisco. Izzy is 21, a junior in college, and also has a life of her own in San Francisco. And the other day, I was sitting by myself out in the backyard, and I was reflecting on the way our family has been influenced and shaped by the space and by the time we have spent together in our backyard. We've cooked, eaten, laughed, argued, played, prayed, celebrated, cried. We've had family meetings out there. We've had discussions about important decisions we were trying to make. We've philosophized and we've relaxed. Over this past holiday season, we were all together for a time, and the center of our reunion over this past holiday season, not surprisingly, was hanging out together in our backyard. Our backyard is sacred ground because it's a place of encounter, and it's a place of shaping. We are who we are as a family because of the time we have spent together in our backyard. Things have occurred in the backyard, some of them extraordinary, most of them very ordinary, that have established the backyard into our family's liturgy. Let's go sit outside is a regular invitation in our family. And it means more than going and sitting outside. It means relationship. It means connection, oftentimes at deep levels. It means time together to be with one another. So our backyard is part of who we are, and it has shaped us as a family. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Lord's table as a shaping, influencing, and transformative place and transformative practice in our life together as Oak Hills Church. And I have an ongoing desire for us. One might even call it a vision that we would continue to experience the transformational power of Jesus' table. That we would continue to recognize that this ancient practice that has been in the church since the very beginning, that through this God does something to us individually, but even more so to us as a congregation. We become His people as we celebrate at the table. It would be my desire and perhaps vision that we would routinely say to each other, let's go to the table. When there is a difficulty or a conflict or some kind of confusion, that one O'Killian would say to the other, let's bring it to the table. When two staff are stuck in some kind of disagreement or two elders cannot come to terms on something or two friends are simply stuck in whatever it is that they've been disagreeing on, that they would say to each other, well, let's sit at the table and see what happens. In this divided, angry, intense cultural climate that all of us are living in each and every week, there simply is no practice more desperately needed to nourish faith in God and inspire life in His kingdom than the practice of His table. And we talked two weeks ago about the table of community. This idea of relationship, the non-negotiable of our togetherness on this journey of Christ-likeness. We come to the table and we sit at the table as a community oriented around Jesus. And I think this is important. I've mentioned it, I think, both weeks. I want to mention it again. In the ideal perfect world, in the ideal, let's say, perfect 
city of Folsom, if we could have things the way I would imagine God would want them to be, there would not be an Oak Hills church and a Lakeside church and a Bayside church. There would be a church, the church of Folsom. And we would be united and we would be together and there'd be differences here and there'd be differences there. But the table would pull those differences uh, together and set those differences aside and we would gather and worship together under the kingship of Jesus. That would be ideal, but we're not quite there yet. So we will strive for this within our own faith community here at Oak Hills, that we come to the table and we sit at the table as a community of people, a community of different people who are oriented to Jesus, and we submit and we surrender our differences, whatever they may be, and we recognize that what we have in common is more powerful than our differences. Last week we talked about the table of reconciliation, this powerful, potent word of reconciliation, this high calling of God, That Jesus Christ came to this earth to reconcile all things. And if we follow him, then we follow him as a reconciler. As Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is a reconciler, and those who follow him are reconcilers as well. And today we finish this series by thinking about the table of the kingdom. The Lord's table is the table of the kingdom. It teaches us the way of the kingdom. It demonstrates the present right now reality of the kingdom, and it points to the future hope of the kingdom, what Scott referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, that one day we will ultimately gather together as one people of God across the centuries, and we will feast and we will celebrate the culmination of all things. So today I want us to consider three aspects of the kingdom we encounter at the table. And the first is, let's talk about the ethics of the kingdom. We see the ethics of the kingdom of God lived out at the Lord's table. What that means is we see what it looks like to be kingdom people and to live in the new way of God's kingdom by observing what happens at the Lord's table. Now, I think very many well-meaning people, unfortunately, have a default understanding of the kingdom of God as a future paradise they will inherit after they die. In fact, if you simply think about what comes to mind first when you hear the phrase kingdom of God, many people think in terms of, oh, that's heaven. That's what's where I'm going to be after I die, or at least we hope. And certainly when the fullness of the kingdom comes, it will be heaven. When nothing restrains it, nothing pushes against it, nothing holds it back, it is true to say the kingdom of God is heaven and will be heaven. But the kingdom is not only this kind of future hope. The kingdom is a present reality. When Jesus began his public ministry, he announced in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, this was his announcement. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that's a verse you may have heard many times. But just a little personal testimony from my perspective. My Christian experience dramatically changed 
when I began to consider and comprehend Jesus' announcement, the kingdom of God has come near in and through him. I didn't ponder this on my own. I had others who helped me along this way. But my Christian experience dramatically changed and continues to change as I ponder this announcement. The kingdom of God has come near. Because what Jesus is saying there is repent and believe this good news. That the kingdom of God has come near. And kingdom conveys the idea of a reign or a rule. We have this little dog named Charlotte. She's about 12 pounds. And if you're trying to get a vision of what Charlotte is like and who Charlotte is, if you took Kim Kardashian from today's world and blended her with Elizabeth Taylor from yesterday's world, you would have our little Queen Charlotte. That's kind of how she operates. And her queendom is where what Charlotte wants done gets done which is essentially everywhere in our house. So the kingdom of God is near means the reign of God is near. It means where what God wants done gets done. The kingdom of God is near means the kingdom of God is close. The reign of God is close. The rule of God is close. It is present and it is available right now in and through the person of Jesus, and this was the good news that Jesus announced. But I want to try and make it simple, even at the risk of oversimplifying. I want to suggest the meaning of the kingdom of God is packed into the familiar phrase we find in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God right now, in this moment? It means to live and think and work And relate in the flow of God's will right now. It means to act in the flow of God's actions. The rule of God is now available to everyone who wants God to rule. In the words of one writer, So review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. This is the good news. In and through the person of Jesus... We have the chance to live each moment within the grace and movement of God's Spirit. In the words of another who understood all this, we take our life into His life. So the kingdom is about God's will being done. So things that are broken and wrong are made right and whole. It's very fitting and good to think about the kingdom on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. This idea of things that are wrong, being made right, that is the work of the kingdom. As another author puts it, the good news is not the announcement of an escape pod for our souls. It is the inbreaking of shalom. And so the kingdom is about the inbreaking of flourishing for all. It is righteousness and goodness breaking through in all situations and in all relationships, and in all of creation. This is the kingdom. Racial reconciliation is a kingdom issue. 
In the passage Scott read from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is worked up into a lather because the church in Corinth has lost this vision we are talking about for the new way of life and love called for by those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the proof of their blindness is evident in how they were coming to the Lord's table. Paul says, I hear when you come together, there are divisions among you. Fascinating thing for us to think about in the world in which we now live. Paul says to this Corinthian church, I hear when you come together, there are divisions among you. Point being, divisions are not the way of the kingdom. He goes on, when you come together to eat, uh, to eat, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers and don't wait for everyone else to arrive so the food can be shared and everyone, both rich and poor, gets their fill. In other words, self-preservation, looking out for number one, self-focus is not the way of the kingdom. He continues, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, you've forgotten what it actually means and what is actually happening at the table, and you are simply feeding your faces and guzzling your wine. And some of you are actually sloshed. That's the Greek word. No, it's not. But you're hammered. And you've lost the significance and the sacredness of the Lord's table. And he's trying to drive home the point. This is not the way of the kingdom. You've lost the vision of the kingdom, so you've lost the practice of the table. See, here's what they were doing. Paul wrote this letter in 57 AD. So let's call it 25 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And at the time of this writing, the Lord's Supper was part of a larger fellowship meal where Christians would gather together in someone's home more than likely and somewhere during or after this fellowship meal the bread would be broken and the cup would be passed and the Lord's life and death and resurrection would be remembered and celebrated but in Corinth the wealthy Christians were bringing their expensive foods to the house where the potluck was going to happen and they were bringing silver oak and camus and Opus One Cabernet to the house where it was going to be served. Lorraine told me those are really good wines, but we won't stop there. And these wealthy Christians, these wealthy Christians were gathering over in this private area of this home, away from everybody else, and they were eating the expensive food they brought, and they were drinking the good wine they brought, but they weren't sharing it with anyone. And by the time some of the others arrived at the house, the church gathering, these wealthier Christians were stuffed and drunk. So the divisions of Corinthian society, of any society, rich and poor, have and have-nots, were being embodied or incarnated in the Corinthian church, and Paul lays into them. Because the point of the Lord's Supper is to exalt Jesus over these differences. Come together in and through Him. The abundance of the table, the abundance of His table, means food and drink for all. And the rich offer what they have to the poor. And they share together in it. And most of all, at the table, His death, His life, His resurrection is remembered. But maybe even more than remembering, it is re-entered. His story is re-entered and re-experienced. In short, 
The table is where the new ethics of the kingdom are practiced. This guy, James K.A. Smith, this is on the screen. He writes this, the Eucharist is our model of the eschatological order, a microcosm of the way things really ought to be. Thus it is a normative meal. By showing us a foretaste of how things ought to be, the practice of the Lord's Supper carries norms in it. And these norms constitute both a basis of critique for the present order as well as hints as to how the church should order itself as a polis that is itself a foretaste of the coming community. Here's what that means. The table is a microcosm of the way things ought to be. The table and what happens at the table is an example of the way things are supposed to be when God reigns, when the kingdom comes. So for the people of God who profess to be reigned over by God, the table is where all that converges. He established... Uh, When he was at his last supper with his disciples, he established the first Lord's Supper. And at that table, he set forth a new set of ethics for his people. He taught his disciples a new way they were to be with one another and with the world. He set forth, in other words, a new way of doing life. And this kingdom way, as we sometimes call it, was practiced and rehearsed and remembered and manifested at the table. I've mentioned this throughout these three weeks, but John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17 records Jesus' teaching to his disciples at the Last Supper, and it is there that he sets forth kingdom ethics, such as sacrificial love. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13, thereby establishing the ethic of sacrificial love as the distinguishing mark of his people. John 13, 34, by love, everyone will know you are my disciples. Another ethic of the kingdom bursting out of the table is this. This world is not all there is. John chapter 14, practically the whole chapter, says Jesus is going to prepare a place for his disciples. And then he's going to come back and bring his disciples to that place. His disciples at the table and us. One day all things will culminate. And the fullness of the kingdom will come into every corner of this universe. So the kingdom ethic of the table is the line in our communion liturgy. Lift up your hearts. Look up. Look beyond what is right in front of you. Because there's more to life than bills and backyards and jobs and school and political chaos and 401ks. Lift up your hearts. You are the people of God. Look beyond to the kingdom of God. You know, another ethic of the table is the centrality of Jesus Christ to this whole arrangement. John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John fourteen nine. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14.10 The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. History converges in Jesus Christ. And at the table, we remember this. All of history 
centers on him, is shaped by him, and is transformed by him. And at the table, we come to encounter him again. Another aspect of the new ethics of the table is the reality of the Holy Spirit to now help and guide the people of God and the church. This is John chapter 14, verse 17. The world cannot accept the Spirit of God because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. Another aspect of the ethics of the table, something we have talked about a lot here and will continue to do so, it's the word unity. And I've said this so many times. Unity is empty if everybody is the same. It doesn't mean anything. If we look around this room and everybody has the same color and everybody is the same age and everybody dresses the same way, lives in relatively the same neighborhood, makes relatively the same amount of money, thinks relatively the same about various social issues and votes the same, tell me what does unity actually mean? It doesn't mean a thing because there's nothing that we have to surrender in order to be unified because we all agree in the first place anyway. That's not unity. That's uniformity. So John 17, verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Again, it'd be nice if there was a church of Folsom, but there isn't. So within the church known as Oak Hills, bring the difference in every way, shape, or form. And then we have something to pray for that actually is a message to the world of unity. You mean you all don't vote the same? You don't look the same? You don't make the same amount of money? You don't have the same abilities? You're not the same color? Absolutely not. Well, then how are you all together? Through the table of our Lord who pulls us together. I hope you're seeing what it means to say at the table we rediscover kingdom ethics. See, this is not a stack of religious stuff shoved over here in a small compartment of our lives. This is not dabbling at the edges of an amorphous spirituality that's just kind of out there with no meaning. This is about life right now, your life right now and mine in the flow of God's action where his will is done. So here's the bottom line. At the table, we rediscover ultimate reality. I hope we feel this. I'm saying this not for effect. I'm saying this because this is the message of the Bible. At the table, we rediscover ultimate reality, the ultimate truth of God's kingdom. We remember the primary posture of this life for the follower of Jesus that we are right now living. And here's the primary posture. Thy will be done. Kingdom. See, the ethics of the table are how life and the world are supposed to be. And guess what? You and me and we are the ones who are to live this out to be an example in this jacked up world. This is how the church is supposed to gather as different people, rich and poor, black and white, Democrat and Republican, Educated and non-educated, female and male, young and old, brown hair and blonde hair, 
and white hair all together. See, at the table, we, read, we discover the ultimate reality of the kingdom of God and we reject the way of the world and the power games and the narcissism and the uniformity and all of our small I identities and we lay them down and recalibrate to Jesus our King. Second aspect, the present reality of the kingdom we encounter at the table. When the first Christians gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the purpose of it, among other things, was to recite and remember the story of Jesus. In fact, as we know, we've touched on this a little bit, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, was actually a gathering to celebrate the Passover. And so the Passover was what was going on at the Last Supper, and it was at the Last Supper that Jesus inaugurated communion. So just like the Israelites gathered to celebrate the Passover, to remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt and revisit the story, new generations who weren't even thought of when the Exodus occurred had the chance now to hear and enter the great story. They could experience the wonder of God's favor to Israel through the Passover meal. They could see the blood spread over the doorframe of their house. They could eat the unleavened bread made fast so they could leave fast and pack quickly to get out of Egypt on the day of their liberation. New generations entered into the story and experienced it through the elements and through the liturgy of the Passover meal. And this is what's happening at the Lord's table. We enter the door of the upper room and we take our seat at the Lord's table. And the next thing you know, Jesus washes your feet and he washes my feet. And we're stunned by what he's doing. This ethic we can't comprehend. And then we recline at the table and we hear the exchange between him and Peter. We see Jesus talk with Judas before Judas leaves. And Jesus doesn't tackle him. And so we begin to think of our own betrayals, the own way we walk away from him. We hear about Jesus going away soon. We have some idea what is happening at the table, but we have no idea what is really happening at the table. We understand, sort of, but not completely. See, a new era has dawned in the person of Jesus. And that's one of the points and the purposes of the table. A new era has dawned. The kingdom of God has come into the right now situations of everyday life, which means his reign can be experienced by you and me right now. His will can be done right now. In your life and mine. And this is why Paul is cranked up in 1 Corinthians 11. Because the church has forgotten. It's one of the great sins of the people of God throughout their history. Old Testament, New Testament. The church forgot. The people forgot. So in 1 Corinthians 11, they gathered, but they've turned the Lord's table into a place of eating and drinking and being merry. They've forgotten the real story. They've forgotten the reality of the kingdom right there in their midst. They've forgotten the reality of the risen Jesus right there 
in their midst. First Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Paul says this strange thing for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. There's this whole business of eating in an unworthy manner. Not too many smart scholars think that that means, well, you committed a sin the week you're going to go to the communion table, so now you can't go. Most scholars think that that means you're coming to the table, but you're not really contemplating what's actually going on. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, what's actually happening? The powerful thing, seen and unseen, taking place at the table. There's plenty of confusion about what this idea of discerning the body of Christ means. But the words say it all. Without discerning the body of Christ, without recognizing His presence in the celebration of the meal, we miss the power of the table and the power of the kingdom. You see, at the table, we encounter the present reality of the kingdom of God. That is, the reality of Jesus with us right now. The reality of the Spirit dwelling in us. And among us. And so the situations of our lives get reframed and redeemed at the table. Because here we encounter the present reality of the kingdom. And we remember, ah yes, Jesus is indeed alive. And he is indeed active. And he's indeed involved in this stuff and in the situations of our lives. So think about this. Right now in our jobs in our finances, in our marriages, our families, our careers, our conflicts, our thought process, our diseases, our problems, our ailments, whatever, God wants to reign and rule. He wants us to live in the particulars of those circumstances oriented around Him. Thy will be done. Trusting Him. Relying on Him. Living in His gracious flow. Now there are all sorts of implications of the present reality of the kingdom. But the key idea is power. The action of God in real life situations. And we learn to pay attention to the action of God through the practice of the table. See, this is a training ground for hearing Him and being present to Him so we can go from the table and we can be present with one another out in everyday life. Now, we could go on and on about this. Many implications of the table. Implications for mission. Implications for being out in the town and so forth. But I have a conviction about us as it relates to the present reality of the kingdom we encounter at the table. I have this conviction about us and about this gathering, and I've shared it with a number of you, and I can't shake it. Maybe I'm all wrong and it has no meaning whatsoever. You can decide that after I tell you about it. But I have this conviction about the missional opportunities right in front of us when we gather together. In other words, the way the Spirit wants to move among us when we're here. And we will enter into the far country as a congregation, I believe, When this stops being only a vertical exchange. By which I mean, when this stops just being me and God, what are you going to do here today? What do you want from me today? And when this stops being even us 
and God. All good and necessary. And when this stops being you're there and we're here, so the vertical of you being there looking up here, when that all stops being the primary focus, we will head to the far country as a congregation. Because what's going to happen is we'll enter the far country as a congregation when the table compels us to pay attention to what the Spirit is doing in this room. And church for you and church for me will change when we come through those doors praying something like this. Jesus, who needs me to be you for them today. So our eyes are now open. What is up in the kingdom now here? With others. What's happening with people? Where is Jesus calling me? Where is he pulling me? And I'm just going to say this outright. My absolute delight and the strength of Oak Hills, the signs of life and hope and goodness and rightness, the signs of the kingdom are there when that horizontal thing is happening. Someone asked me recently, what are the signs of health in your church? And it came right out of my mouth. When I see people on Sunday doing this with each other, ministering to each other in the power of the Spirit, taking risks, going to each other, pouring into each other, encouraging each other, getting their eyes off of what is up here and you know, listening sort of but not really and start doing this, that's a sign of help. And that is my great delight. People are being Christ to each other. They've learned to attend to His presence at the table, and now they're attending to His presence in and with one another. People are being Christ to each other. They're taking risks. They're encouraging each other. They're sensing the Spirit's prompting, and they're taking action. I have to tell you, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the back um, as the service was starting. I don't remember all the particulars. But I watched one woman go to another woman, and the, the second woman is going through an excruciating time. And the first woman walked over and held out her hands, and the woman who's going through a tough time put her hands into the, this woman's hand, and she stood there and talked to her and spoke into her and shared things with her. I was far away. I have no idea what they said. But I know enough of the situation to know there's ministry happening right there. That was prompted by the Spirit of God, and she's pouring into this woman. And all I could think of was, I'm going to go tell that woman, go home now, because you just got what you came for. Whatever I'm going to say means nothing. What you just experienced is the presence of God through a sister. And that's all you need. So take off. That's powerful. When that happens. And you can go to the bank on this and you can come and tell me, no, you're wrong about that. And maybe I am. But your experience as a Christ follower and as an O'Killian will change. When coming here is no longer about God, what do you got for me today? And it's about God who needs me today. Who needs me to be you? And you just start paying attention to what the Spirit's doing. And then when you sense something... You don't trust any of those thoughts that tell you, well, no, don't. Who are you? You don't trust any of that. You go and you trust that God's in that. Third and last, as we think about the table, we have to think about the future hope of the kingdom. Now, we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper today, even though it seems really odd to me that we're not doing that. It seems anticlimactic. It seems 
the way to put an exclamation point at the end of this three-week series is to come to the table one more time and receive the bread and receive the cup and remember the story of redemption and reconciliation and encounter the presence of Jesus and reaffirm our identity as his people. But we're not going to do that today, and I've been unsettled by this all week long. Why aren't we coming to the table today? It seems so silly to come this far and then stop short of the table on the last day of what I think has been an important series. Just unsatisfying to end this way. And it would be inauthentic of me to say that we thought all this through and have some elaborate reason why we're not celebrating, because we, we don't have any elaborate reason. It would be giving us too much credit to say, well, the reason we aren't doing it is because of, and then make something up. We're not celebrating the table because we decided not to celebrate the table. And I have no idea why. But that decision... And the related emptiness of it, if you can feel this, the unmet longing, that sense of, huh, that's kind of deflating, offer important insight to us about the Lord's table. So back on the screens, this guy, James Smith, there's a certain sense in which the celebration of the Lord's Supper should be experienced as a kind of sanctified letdown. For every week that we celebrate the Eucharist is another week that the kingdom and its feast have not yet fully arrived. And I want to remind you of what Scott said earlier. This is not just dabbling around, playing games, throwing out religious words, trying to make us all feel better. What we believe is that there is a future for this kingdom and for our life in that kingdom. We believe that there is a day that is coming when all of the brokenness will be healed and all of the wrongs will be made right. So the table reminds us that while the kingdom has come in Jesus, it has not fully come. And while the kingdom has come in Jesus and is near in Jesus, it has not completely come. And one day he will return and all things will be made new. All things will finally be as they should be completely. His reign and his rule will be unhindered. And righteousness and goodness and justice will flow freely and all will finally be well. So when we come to the table, we are remembering what happened at the Last Supper and we are looking forward to what will happen at the Great Supper. Jesus himself described this coming fulfillment in Luke 22, 17 to 18. You've probably heard it many times. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he's saying to us, this table is where we encounter him, but the day will come when we will encounter him and be together and all the wrong will be made right and all the broken will be healed. So the table points to this future hope. So I want to ask you to close your eyes as we finish this. occurred to me one of my failings as one of your leaders I'm quite sure is not enough emphasis on where all this culminates perhaps the fear of turning the kingdom of God into the thought of a future in heaven has caused me to rarely mention heaven 
or rarely mention the future hope when the kingdom finally culminates and comes completely. But I think it would be good today as you think about life, as you think about relationship, as you think about the things that burden you, you think about the struggles, perhaps things that have burdened you for a long, long time, you've struggled with for a long time. Maybe you're facing some kind of physical ailment and it's just kind of weighing heavy on you. Perhaps it's even a serious ailment and your future is in question. Well, let me say to anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, your future is not in question. And this table, decked out in its abundance, with a big, rich, full pour of wine, and lots of bread, and cheese, and chocolate, and cookies, and grapes, and fruit. This table, in its abundance, points to the wedding feast, the future hope, the day when all things will be made well. So whatever you are facing, perhaps these good words from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, will help you as you navigate the realities of your life against the backdrop of your future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Lord Jesus Christ, we Declare that to be trustworthy and true. That someday, one day, your kingdom will fully and finally come. And there will be no more resistance to it. And goodness and righteousness and flourishing will seep into every crack and corner of this universe. And all will be well. So as we continue to try to sort out what it means to be your people in this fractured and divided and angry world, give us a vision of the far country. Give us a vision that catches us up into something more than just doing church. Something more than just accepting our frailties and our flaws. But rather, Catch us up into this marvelous transformational journey where we courageously follow you and we take you at your word and we see what happens when people who are different experience the unity of your table and the unity of being one 
in Jesus Christ that the world will see that's who God is. That's what it means to be his follower. That's what it means to be his people. And we pray to this end in Jesus' name. Amen.